0: Welcome to the 2019 Wealth Standard Podcast, Season 1, Capitalism, and now your host, Patrick Donahoe. Hey, everyone. This is Patrick Donahoe. Welcome to the Wealth Standard Podcast. And this is one of our first episodes uh, for Season 1, 2019, where we are focused on the theme of capitalism. And I decided to have one of my good friends, Jason Rink, Join me for this, and one of the initial episodes, the first guest episode. And the reason why I brought Jason on is him and I have interacted for a number of years. Now, I'm going to tell you our story in just a second, but I consider him individual understands the philosophy of capitalism better than most. And also, he, in a sense, is kind of like a non biased party. So, there's not like you know an, an institute behind his title or a book behind his title, he's just really represented the concept of capitalism. As far as his philosophy is concerned, all the different activities of his professional life in such a manner that I think this is going to be an invigorating conversation. So, Jason, I don't even know like what to call you—you know, president of. You do so many different things. It's like I don't even. It's hard (laughs) to keep track of you sometimes. You know, I'll tell the story in just a second. But why don't you just, you know, take a, a second to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, Patrick. Well, first, I just want to thank you for having me on. I'm super stoked to have this conversation with you, and really honored, man, because. Your podcast has been around for so long. You've had so many different guests on it, people that I really respect. And you were telling me about some of the other people coming on this season. And I'm like, whoa, I'm like surrounded by some giants. So I'm really, really humbled to be a part of this. But yeah, you know, I actually started, well, part of my career, I was in commercial banking for 10 years. You know, so when the bailouts started happening in 2007 and eight and the financial crisis and all that started to visit upon the U.S. economy, I was working at Chase Bank in the equipment finance division and in business banking. And it was along that period of time I got introduced to Ron Paul. And I was totally not a political person at the time, but Ron Paul had some ideas that really resonated with me personally. And as I started looking into what he had to say about the Federal Reserve and started to say about Austrian economics and all of these things, I started to get really interested in these ideas. And at the same time, I found myself here in like kind of the belly of the beast, so to speak. And as things started to go south during that 2008 crisis, I started to see like, wow, some of these things Ron Paul's talking about are just like happening all around me. And I felt really conflicted as well, because I'm like, here I am like working for the Federal Reserve, so to speak, you know, here at at the big banks. And so it was during that season of time, just about 10 years ago, that I really started to dive deep into Austrian economics and monetary policy and just kind of some light reading on the side. So yeah, and that really set me off on a course of just being personally really interested in these ideas. And fast forward to today, I have a video production company. I've worked with a lot of free market oriented think tanks and organizations because I support what they're doing like uh, fee and have done some work in the infinite banking realm with Nelson Nash. And at the same time, I do a lot of work with some big brands like Toyota and Mazda and Aston Martin. So I'm really just now out in the world. I'm a business owner. I am a capitalist. I'm out there creating jobs and generating income for my family. and. I guess I'm applying the principles that I believe about free market capitalism and you know, sound money and being smart with how I invest and preserving my capital and all that. I'm doing it like out in real life right now. So it's kind of like the lab for all the
0: ideas that I've I've embraced over the last 10 years. Okay. And that's what's gonna be cool about this conversation is to talk about what you know, what you're doing, but just kind of the drive behind it, what that has to do with anything. I think capitalism is one of those esoteric terms in a sense that you know, most people know they recognize, but don't really understand what it means, and especially don't know what it's what it means as it relates to them individually. But let me go back and and really help people understand our our relationship because I met you right during this probably same period of time at at Freedom Fest down in in Las Vegas, which is put on by Mark Scouson. It's a, an event he's been doing for a couple of decades now, and you at the time had produced or part of the production team with the, uh, I think the 12th, is it the 12th Amendment Center? Yeah, it's, it was the 10th Amendment Center.
1: I think it was 2012 is probably when it was because I had made a movie called Nullification yeah. with Tom Woods and Michael Bolden of the 10th Amendment Center. And it was all about the 10th Amendment, the idea that the states have the right to push back against federal legislation that's unconstitutional, pretty mm-hmm. controversial idea. And that was my first feature length documentary I ever made. And I was at Freedom Fest. My film was there. And I think that's when you and I got connected first.
0: Yeah, because I I saw, you know, I was there at the little film festival that they do as part of the conference, right? And saw you there. And then I think it was just that next winter uh, in 2013, where we were at an industry event. And, I'm, you know, I'm walking along and, like, I see you and I reckon, you know, you have a very distinct, like, you know, your glasses and you're, like, Tony Stark goatee, et cetera. <laughs> you know, I was like, hey, you're, you're that guy. And, you know, and that's when we kind of hit it off. And then I saw you that summer again at Freedom Fest. And from there, you know, we've just kind of kept in contact. And, you know, you're part of uh, Prosperity Economics Movement that I work with. Anyway, we won't go there. But, you know, I, I would say our, yes, yeah. so our, you know, our, our, like, you know, the link. What links us, right? I would say, as far as our relationship is concerned, is the ideas that we're going to be be discussing. That's our backstory, and this is where I really want to go with the conversation. But before we do that, we're going to break just for a short commercial. Hey, listeners! Thanks for tuning in. My book, the Amazon bestseller "Heads I Win, Tails You Lose," a financial strategy to reignite the American dream, is completely changing the way people look at saving wealth, and retirement. Want a sneak peek? Head on over to www.headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast for a free audio and text download of my favorite chapter. Again, that's headsortailsiwin.com forward slash podcast. Okay, we're back. And I told I'd left everybody hanging with that teaser, but this is where we're going to go. So from a very general standpoint, I really wanted to talk about how you understand capitalism and why you've come to, to certain conclusions about its relevance and how magical it is if properly understood, and then address some of the misconceptions that are out there. Because it's a misconception where people don't really kind of understand it or have this idea about it. But it's kind of like you know, third in line behind religion and politics as far as discussion points. People feel so strongly about it where their emotions take over that belief. And you can't really have a, a rational conversation with anybody about it, right? That's how strong this topic really is. And so penetrating into the language and vernacular of uh, United States. But then I want to get into this, you know, a confused sense of morality as why there's this big Bernie, you know, push as well as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez push. Like why that's so appealing, but why it's really the same drive as just the pure sense of capitalism. Not that like there's a tall order to this conversation. But, <laughs> right. Let's right. see if
1: we could just like really solve this thing and and get both sides joined together tall hand to in hand.
0: Tall <laughs> task. But let's just start there with how do you understand capitalism and, and maybe what's the story behind that?
1: The word capitalism, does people bring with it certain understandings or ideas about the word? Like you can't throw the word out there by itself. And it's like, if you throw the word Trump out there, you're gonna get some polarized opinions. If you throw the word Jesus out there, you're gonna get some polarized opinions. And then all of a sudden there's this other word, capitalism, and it's almost as big of a grenade in a conversation. It's interesting because digging back into my own understanding, you know, I don't think I ever had a negative perspective personally on capitalism. I was pretty neutral on the idea. And when I started to dig into, you know, learning more about money and government and all these sorts of things, I started to recognize that a way to define capitalism that worked for me was I started to see it as the market or voluntary exchange. And when I say the market, like I'm even thinking at its smallest sense, like when you go into a farmer's market in a city, you know, where You've got all of these different entrepreneurs like selling their goods, vegetables, and like charcoal toothpaste and candles and soap or whatever it is that they're selling there. You know, I'm in Austin. So these type of things are, you know, got all sorts of wacky wares, you know. But it's like the farmer's market is kind of like the purest form of like trade. And I don't think there's anybody out there who looks at a farmer's market and they're like, oh my gosh, that's an evil capitalist thing. And it's because this idea of the marketplace, where people come together as buyers and sellers of their own free will voluntarily, exchanging goods and services, that seems very like normal. I think that resonates with us all at a human level. And that is really what I see as like the fundamental truth that's baked into the idea of capitalism.
0: There's so many different examples that we can cite, but I want to Really reverse engineer the whole idea of a, of a farmer's market or a market in general, where people come to actually exchange their goods and services, right? And this really comes down to the drive there. You know, and this is kind of where I think where we should start with just the idea of capitalism. You know, what's the fundamental drive that initiates the system? And then we're going to get into you know some of the tenets. But what's the initiating drive for someone to go to a farmer's market?
1: I think it's like we have to even go further back, you know, because When we just look at human beings in society, we all fundamentally have to find a way to survive and to provide for ourselves and for our families. And that's at the fundamental drive here is like, how am I going to generate the things that I need to live? When you go to that fundamental level, there's a couple of different ways we can do it. And the primary way is for me to go out and try to gather together all of the different things that I need to survive, my food, my water, my shelter, you know, all of those things to create them myself through my own work and through my own hands. And what you see is that the way that this is developed throughout society, but just logically when you look at how this all comes together is that eventually as people gather together in societies like it turns out that some people are better at certain things and other things and We find ways to become more efficient. We find ways to become more effective at creating certain things and not other things. And what we do is we start to specialize in making certain things, then we trade to other people for things that they create. And so, this whole market economy or the flourishing of like certain people specializing in certain skills and products and other people, and then finding a way to exchange those things in the marketplace, that coming to life is a function of just trying to find the most efficient way to survive and to care for ourselves and to hopefully at some point generate some leisure and so baked within this whole market thing is like concepts of money and trade and survival and craftsmanship and all of these things that's where it comes to life so the farmers market really is just like the outgrowth of that sort of development in it's really the development of social technology like if you really think about what the marketplace is it is a social technology it's something that makes it easier for us to
0: survive on this planet let me kind of break down everything you said which was brilliant if you look at the word that keeps coming to mind right is that what initiates is people want something right and yeah. what is what is it that they want i would first say not even asking what they want it's why do they want it? And this is where I think we're all, all human beings are wired. Now this is gonna sound like totally, you know, not politically correct, but we're wired to do what's best in the best interest of ourselves, right? And this is the kind of the nature of it. And again, the politically correct thing, which I think people look at morality, right, is that, you know, we have stewardship to take care of other people. And I would say that's true to an extent, at the same time, you can't best take care of other people unless you take care of yourself first. So that's the first thing is the initiating drive is a self-interest, right? It's you as an individual because people are driven to survive, number one. But as you go up through the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's not the needs of a society, it's the personal needs. Like those are personal needs, which start with physiological, then they go to safety, then they go to relationships, then they go to, you know, self-esteem, then they go to self-actualization. These are all like personal needs that we are are self-interested in. People are out there, they wake up in the morning and they're the center of attention, period.
1: I just want to say on what you're talking about, even us gathering together in tribes or in groups or in societies is essentially about self-preservation because what we find is that we are much more likely to survive individually if we gather together with some other folks to help us navigate the world that we're in and the nature and all of those things. So even yeah. this idea of getting together with other people, that's a self-interested drive that drives us there.
0: Yeah. And, and I would say that's, you know, again, going through the, the hierarchy of needs, right? It's physiological, which you, where you need to eat. You need to like have some shelter, right? And then you need some safety. But then what's after that? It's relationships, Starting with intimate relationships, then going to communal type of relationships. Yeah, other people are part of our makeup. It starts with us, right? And it starts with our drive. And really, everybody is this way. Everybody's wired this way. And what's also fascinating is that we all are wired slightly different as to what we think is our best interest. And that really aligns with unique strengths, unique abilities, talents, and so forth. But the idea of capitalism and that structure, that system, is the most purest sense of capitalism is what provides us the opportunity to really go out there uninhibited and pursue that pursue what is best for us now if you reverse you know kind of go back until like the origins because it's not like capitalism the word is in the bible or it's in like you know the ancient scripts of you know what it's like This word, I would say, came about right as the birth of our modern era, right? Toward the you know Scottish Enlightenment around the the Adam Smith period of time, but also the Karl Marx and Frederick Engels who wrote the Communist Manifesto. And this is where that the idea of capitalism started to be demonized, right? But also you have some of the purest, I would say, writings as far as societal morality with a lot of the Scottish Enlightenment and those thinkers that gave birth to this idea of what happens to humanity if there is this structure in place in which people can take who they are what they're best at and really operate for their self-interest because you know the end result is that what really provides people what's best for them the most selfish thing possible has to be able to provide the best thing for somebody else first and that's where i think the confusion is right? Where people are naturally self-interested. We want preservation. We seek all of these needs that I just went through. But really what you pointed out is that as we have a community, most people are self-interested and get what they want based on other people. Other people are involved in that process. Okay. And they're benefited just as much as, you know, the initial individual with their trying to meet their self-interest.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting for me, like, we're self-interested, we're moving through the world in a way where we are looking after our own interests. However, it turns out that the best route to that is to find how we can create the most value for others in this marketplace. It's an interesting design. And when you look at it, for me, it's a spiritual concept to me because I'm like, wow, this is really incredible. And to me, it's kind of like this irony that like, oh, here we are breathing out CO2, which is like poison. Oh, but by the way, there's these things called plants that suck it in and then they generate this oxygen thing out of it. Oh, and by the way, that's what we need. And so, this whole market economy that's based on how can I best serve other people that's going to bring the greatest amount of good back to myself, it's like a paradox on one hand. And on the other hand, it's like, wow, society and humanity has been engineered to function in this way. So once you start to see it that way, it really becomes a beautiful thing. And as it becomes more complicated, right, because we look around right now, the Bernie Sanders of the world, they're not out there railing against the farmer's market, to be clear, you know, they're railing against a more, quote unquote, complicated form of capitalism. And so as our societies change, like it seems like it's gotten much more complicated, but in reality, the same fundamental principle is still at play. And there are some new factors that have been introduced that now we've got to navigate around in this marketplace in order for us to achieve those two basic goals of provide the most value to provide the
0: greatest good for ourselves. I'm going to go what, to just a couple principles, then move to that point. And also, this is where I think that the most confusion exists in regards to the conflict of morality. You know, Adam, he's most known for his book, The Wealth of Nations. His first book is a theory of moral sentiments. And in that book, this is where he breaks down that people have a kind of a natural drive to understand and be moral. And that is, you yeah. know, he calls it the impartial observer, where there's this like, you know, angel on our shoulder, right? When we're tempted to do something that, you know, maybe immoral, it's kind of like we think, and we're like, ask ourselves, it's kind of like, we have this observer on our shoulders, looking at us and we're like caught in between do I make this decision to do something dishonest or do I be honest and do the right thing? Well how do we know it's the right thing? Right? There's no like you know board that says this is the right thing to do. It's kind of like we have that wiring inside of us. And then we have you know this kind of compelling force that you know he calls it the impartial observer, this compelling force to do the right thing. So this is where you have all right most people demonize capitalism because it exploits others or it takes advantage of others where A person benefits by making others worse. And that's where I would say is the biggest disconnect, okay? Because the true nature of capitalism or a capitalist, right, is going out there, taking a risk and doing it because it meets some level of of self-interest, okay? But other people have to benefit, right? More so than the person that is actually creating whatever that good and service is in the first place, right? And that's where I would say when you inhibit that, as I said before, you inhibit human nature, right? And you look at what stagnation occurs when you don't allow a person to think, when you don't allow them to figure things out. And there's countless examples, right, of, and I hate to start using some of these buzzwords, but more socialist, or I'm not even going to say socialist or communism. I'm just going to say when a person has removed from them the opportunity to figure things out to survive to figure out their life it is one of the greatest harms caused on an individual and here's the deal it is done all over the place with the banner of doing it as morality as the right thing to do the right thing to do is to give this person food housing to give them the structure to give them a safety net that's not what makes us thrive even though like this confused sense of morality puts us where it makes sense. Oh yeah, we need to give to them so that it helps them. Giving handouts, safety nets, food, whatever the case may be, is really where the biggest prevention of where human beings thrive. So maybe we gravitate toward that because you brought up this idea of what capitalism has become, which is more corporatism, I would, I would say, than anything else. Is that really capitalism?
1: It is funny. It's like you said at the beginning. Yeah, we got thirty minutes to get to the bottom of this. It's like the further you go, the more there is to unpack. Sometimes, on the one hand, we've got this idea at play where people don't always act moral. People' self interest can be directed into a way that generates some negative results in culture and society. And this has been a problem that's been with us for a long time. You know. And so there's this sort of like this balancing act which is like oh people left to their own devices will just sort of run roughshod over everybody and if you can be powerful and you can dominate others and you can take advantage of others well then of course you will and so there is this other force at play and and it's from that that this whole moral argument comes up which is well how do we best act together as a society and ensure that Certain people are taken care of and other people don't have, other people aren't taking advantage of others. And it's in that context that I think these discussions about government and the outgrowth of government ends up being things like corporatism and whether or not government can serve as this sort of like impartial entity that can help take care of certain people or certain things. So as we start peeling the layers of the onion, right? There's all sorts of different social dynamics here. And one of the books I found most helpful in navigating this whole terrain was The Law by Bastia. And what was so useful about that book and why I think it's one of the most important pieces of philosophical writing that I've come across is because what it does is it forces us to really look at this idea of whether or not we as individuals can carry out actions and certain actions as moral actions, and whether we can delegate the immoral actions to another entity to carry them out on our behalf. Mm -hmm. Because when we start talking about this whole idea of morality, and whether or not capitalism is moral, or whether or not how it is we're going to go about taking care of the needs of the less fortunate and things, you've really got to wrestle with this idea. Because most people won't look at carrying out theft or violence against another individual as a moral idea. Like if I were to be violent against you to take something that's yours and give it to somebody else, universally as a society, we don't see that as a moral good. And yet there is something that takes place when we then take that same activity through a process of democracy or voting or whatever it is we put it into this thing called government, which is run by people, which is populated by flawed individuals who were worried about over here taking advantage of other people and being self-interested and running roughshod. And then we just create this thing called government that now is supposed to become like a neutral, good entity. Flawless can,
0: neutral entity.
1: Yeah, exactly. That can then carry out what is essentially the same thing, theft and violence against others. And so somehow there's a magic that occurs in that process that makes that moral. That feels like a little bit of a rabbit trail. But what I'm pointing to is this idea that we are really dealing with, we have a lot of people with different ideas about what government is and what force and violence is and what the role of government is and what's just. Because when we start getting into these ideas about capitalism and whether or not, you know, how government gets involved and all these things, what we start getting into is a question about morality. And we have some people on the side of the moral argument that says we can't trust people and businesses to be moral. We can only trust government. People are people and businesses are just groups of people and governments, just groups of people. So we've got sort of the same problems all throughout that. And the point of the story here is that What I hear going on in our society around this discussion of capitalism is one that is more a discussion about who is moral, what institutions are moral, what institutions have the incentives to be most moral. And when we get into that discussion, what I see with capitalism, with this dance of me being self-interested yet having to serve and provide the most value and good for my fellow man... That's an accountability and an incentive structure that's built into capitalism that actually generates the most good out of me. And what I see over here in this design of government is that that same accountability doesn't exist because government is based on a force of extracting resources from this area and moving them over to this area, which is fundamentally an immoral activity.
0: So you said it was a rabbit trail, but I I followed every piece. And this is really the crux of it, right? Where in the end, we all have to have an agreement that we as human beings are all here trying to figure out the same thing. We all have flaws. We all make mistakes. The idea is, do you try to create a system in which mistakes aren't possible? And I would say that's kind of where government goes. And that's where stagnation can be proven time and time again, or do you allow you know, individuals to make those mistakes and then have the structure associated, you know the structure of the environment in which they're making the mistake, done so in a way where the rights of others are as protected as possible? But I would look at whether it's 100 years ago or today, but the system today is that it's very difficult to get away with doing something immoral, especially in a business sense, right? And it's being done quite often, whether it's, you know, hacking or cybersecurity issues or, you know, certain fraudulent businesses, but those don't last very long and are weeded out very quickly because of how we've been able to share information. There's a restaurant that I like going to now on the way into work, but also going home instead of like Chick-fil-A or, or other fast food type of restaurants, if I have to get something on the fly, but it's like a health food store. And I went in there one morning and like the Department of Health was in there, right? Doing like their inspection. Right, and it's one of those things where it's like, okay, well, really, if this place served in a, like a really dirty way, if people got sick from it, like they're going to be out of business, right? Because you have Google, you have Yelp, and the word is going to spread really quickly. So it's one of those things where you know you have government trying to play this role of like the moral authority, saying that this is good and this is bad because we're you know you have to do a we say because we're protecting people right and i would say okay i get that that's a good intention but is there a better way to do it where as you said you're not like taking away the rights of others right which is you know the health food store you know I, I see the intention of government and that authority but i also see the intention of individuals and especially organizations and it comes down to what is the best structure to make the most amount of progress and create the most happiness and prosperity possible for humanity
1: one thing i want to point to is that Like, I'm even willing to grant many times that maybe there was a time in which there needed to be certain government or some sort of oversight or some sort of protection or whatever. Like, let's just, let me grant that to somebody. Great. The question is whether or not anything's changed. And what I think is really interesting when you point to the things such as Yelp, where there's a mechanism for us to govern ourselves. Because really, when you think about what hierarchical government emerged out of, it was really because it was looked to solve some deficiencies in governing ourselves and holding ourselves accountable. What's interesting is we look at something like, when I just want to look at how much has changed, you look at something that's happening with like Uber right now, which is the normalization of getting into cars with strangers to get rides, which is Totally bizarre. And I was in Uruguay actually. I took an Uber in Uruguay years ago. I never would have thought of getting in a foreign country into a stranger's vehicle, right? (laughs) But the mechanism exists now that I can have total comfort in doing that. It's brought the costs of transportation down, it's granted access to transportation to people who didn't previously have it, it's granted opportunities for employment. To people who didn't previously have it. It's brought together all of these different things and it's provided a solution. And what's interesting is who's angry about it.
0: Well, yeah. first off, I would say who's the moral authority?
1: It's twofold, I would say. Like on one hand, there is like a company called Uber that's <laughs> got some things that they've developed. And there's also a function that empowers me as the rider and by the way, the driver <laughs> to rate each other about that experience. So there's actually a series of different checks on what's happening within it. And it's not been put together by government. In fact, the only thing that I'm seeing that's top down in it is the company. And they can only actually carry out the function if they've got the margins to do it. Like,
0: Yeah. And part of that, oh, the whole, again, the moral element to it, right, is that if Uber wasn't doing the right thing, they'd be out of business. But they're also providing a service, and the reason why you are comfortable with it is because of the internal makeup of the feedback system of that feedback loop, right? Yeah, and if you well, saw it, in Uruguay, hey, all drivers have one star. Are you really gonna like you know get a ride? Are you gonna go in a taxi? Are you gonna are you gonna walk? Right. So it's yeah. one of those like there's a built-in impartial observer that is saying like okay, you have to do the right thing. You're not going to kidnap Jason and you know take a hundred bucks out of his wallet because the cost is so much more. And what you gain from it is so much less than what you would gain by doing the right thing.
1: Well, and you touched on another aspect of this moral dimension, which is competition. So in this ride sharing space, you know, Uber's had a little bit of a rocky road the last couple of years because their CEO has run into some allegations about sexism in the workplace, some other things. And those may or may not be true or whatever. I don't really know the details. But what I do know is that I think he actually was removed or stepped down as CEO. Lyft, on the other hand, started picking up a whole lot of more share in the marketplace. And because so here's that. this other company that holds the whole thing accountable. They see an opportunity where are like, oh, we can actually be better. We can be better people. We can run this company different. And that is not something you have to hold government accountable, frankly.
0: You don't, because there's no competition.
1: No, that's the thing. And so at the heart of capitalism is this other thing that is, it's brutal. It's called competition. It is a force of nature. It eats companies and people's lunches. And it's a force of moral good to make sure that what's happening the greatest value for the greatest number of people in the way that the market demands it. You know, it's really incredible.
0: And that's where, you know, I, I look at what's, you know, and I'm going to CES tomorrow, which I've been wanting to do for a number of years now, which is kind of like there's such a strong presence of what humanity is capable of. Right. But there is so much wisdom and potential in our minds. And I would say the issues and the challenges that exist today, right. Whether it's healthcare, or, or it's nutrition, or it's, you know, whatever, you can start to, to list all the different calamities that are out there. Okay, if there's a problem, you know, naturally, you would assume that there's a solution. But in order to accomplish that solution, another person has to come up with that. And the structure to best do that, right, has always been the incentive a person has to do what's best for themselves by first doing and figuring out a way to be of value to somebody else. And that's where I look at, the more of that that exists, the quicker we're not only going to solve the existing problems that we have, but there's going to be more, you know, overall prosperity. But here's the deal is once the, those problems, I mean, what did we solve, you know, hundred years ago in regards to problems, right? You solved the problem of people dying, you know, when they're 35, 40 years old and you created industrialism where, you know, now you started to have more progress in society, but there's other problems that occurred despite that. And then that, those problems were solved. And then there were more problems, you know, once those problems were solved and so on and so forth. And it's always going to be part of, you know, just the human experience is that there's always going to be difficulties, always going to be challenges because we're we're humans and we have that side of us. At the same time, the ultimate solution to that is right up in the mind of an individual. And it's the ideas they come up with and the incentive that they have to actually bring those ideas to the marketplace. Okay. At the same time, when you inhibit and stifle that incentive That is where the system breaks down. And I think there was some, you know, I'll cite one example, then we can get into maybe the other side, which is the confused sense of morality. But one of the examples I, you know, really saw over the last, you know, six months or so is when Facebook was put on trial, right? When they they went to Congress and had to explain to Congress certain elements of how Facebook worked. And what it showed is that, you know, and for better or for worse, has Facebook done some stuff they shouldn't have done? Yeah, like, again, it's one of those, like, They've done a tremendous amount of good. That wasn't celebrated. (laughs) The good that they did as far as connecting the world wasn't celebrated, right? What they've been able to do as far as connecting families and connecting, you know, businesses and creating community accountability, that didn't, you know, that wasn't celebrated. It was, you're taking people's data and you're taking privacy things, which granted, it's, that's something that, you know, they did. And we won't discuss that right now right but the lack of understanding of what facebook does was so surprising to me in the questioning and going back and forth of zuckerberg not explaining what the whole privacy issue was about but having to explain what his business was it's kind of like it just shows the complete disconnect of those type of individuals and in that they're not coming up with solutions right they are essentially playing the role of God, telling people what they should and shouldn't do coming from an infallible place or from coming from a fallible place. Yeah, and, that's where and I would say that's kind of the idea of this morality, right? Is it moral for one infallible person to tell another to do or for an infallible person to figure out ways in which to provide value for others? It's
1: interesting because when we look into the different areas where most people are going to say that capitalism has failed, or we're experiencing you know the negative impact of capitalism when you start looking into most of the sectors that are being discussed like they tend to be the sectors that are most heavily regulated or that government has created the strongest cartels and you start getting into this whole other dimension of things that people don't talk about which is this idea called regulatory capture which is this idea that government or A body that oversees something, there's an incentive to then capture that governing body and influence it for your own purposes. And this is one of the things that we saw when the mortgage crisis started to unfold: is it turned out that the entities that were supposed to be, you know, rating the different bonds and things like that were actually just paid off. Yeah, they're receiving fees from the people they're supposed to be overseeing, and so that creates all sorts of other outcomes. But then, on the other hand, when you start going into places where there really has been poverty throughout history, I mean, in America, it's been a long time since we haven't been the richest nation on the planet. You know, at least on paper, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what the P and L really looks like, but when you go to places where people have been living on under a dollar a day in recent history, and you start looking into the transformation and the human flourishing and the access to opportunity and capital that is happening in places where people have been living on under a dollar a day, and now those people and nations are rising over the last 20, 30, 40 years. The data shows that it has everything to do with the loosening and the expansion of opportunities that we're defining as capitalism, marketplace, being able to voluntarily exchange. And in most of those places, it's been the forces of government or cartels or the destruction of the value of the money that's been making that prosperity be nothing but a a dream. And we can sit around here and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, they can talk about how bad we have it here in America and how bad capitalism is and something needs to be done because of the 1%. And everybody having that conversation in the United States is in the global 1% and always has been. And it's only because we're so rich and prosperous and the fact that capitalism and human ingenuity can outperform and outcreate the forces that try to keep it at bay that we have the luxury to even talk about these ideas while the rest of the world's just been trying to figure out how to get out of those first couple stages of the hierarchy of needs.
0: Yeah, no kidding. So why are the emotions so high then when it comes to these ideas, right? Why is this yelling and screaming and emotional tirades, it seems like, right, where you can't have a rational conversation? Why are they so high?
1: Well, I think part of it is because they're as good as it is, there is a problem. And I do believe that there is a, an unlevel playing field in America and people see it. Like, Some people are feeling that maybe in some areas it is more difficult to become wealthy, to achieve the American dream, all of these things. And what's happening is because most people are not informed, they're not educated. You know, most people are busy trying to work their jobs, care for their families, get a little bit of leisure time on the weekends. They're not diving into Mises and Hayek and Bastiat and Adam Smith, you know? And what you see is that capitalism. When that label is placed on the most visible people and organizations that are the richest in the nation, the label's misapplied because most of the richest in America have taken advantage of regulatory capture in ways that aren't necessarily good. And I think people see that, but they don't see how it's happened. And so the capitalism label is misapplied. It's used by people in the media who have an agenda to try to demonize it, who want to empower government for certain other things. And so it's an uneducated population in in my estimation that doesn't know the difference. Yeah. And so that's where I think the emotions get high because some people are really struggling and envy's at play. Like yep. there's nothing easier than us to look at somebody who's got something we don't have. And for us to think that they're doing something God, you know, bad to get it. And at the same time, there are things at play that have shifted the playing field away from the average person and the middle class individual that I think is, you know, needs to be addressed. It doesn't need to be addressed through redistribution through government, frankly, because again, that's where the problem originates, but people don't want to look there. It's easier to look at the corporate boogeyman. Than it is to look at the ballot box, or it is to look at democracy, which we hold in such a high regard.
0: Okay, so we're yeah, this is the danger. <laughs> this is a danger of this like topic is you can go in so many different directions. Let's do this. I wanna recap what you just said and make a few comments. And then what I wanna do is just pivot to some influential things. You know, you already mentioned the law by Frederick Bastier, but some influential, whether it's books, people, podcasts, et cetera, that help you understand some of these principles where you've come to you know have a belief and a perspective of things, right that is in the camp of atypical. I would say first off, you talked about you know playing field, the even playing field. and also you know where things are or seem unfair. And I look at you know opportunity and also you know what people have. The opportunities that people have today, are somewhat even, a lot more even than they've had, than they've been in the past because of what people have access to. I was watching something the other night where this guy, he wasn't a trained chemist or physicist. He discovered, spent 15 years doing it, but he discovered how to extract sugar from plants that would replace the sugar that we have right now, but also it would create biofuel and and on his board now, it's like a multi-billion dollar company, Xylo something. Right. But you know, he spent 15 years doing it, came up with this and felt so strongly about it. And it took him a number of years to get very prominent people on his board. But yet here's a guy that didn't graduate from MIT or didn't graduate from Harvard and get an MBA or have a, you know, a doctor or PhD behind his name. Okay. he went out and figured things out and used the resources that were available to him and created something pretty freaking amazing. Right. And now, you know, they're saying it's gonna revolutionize just food and fuel and car and emissions. And so my point is people are all wired different. If we agree to that, not everybody's going to have the same life, right? Why would you want the same life? It's all different. And this is really where I I see some of the things that come from us being in this communication rich society, where we see others, we see their life, we see what they have, we see the things that they do. And there's an envy there, But that's the thing is there's never going to be equality when it comes to what people have. The equality is always going to be in the environment in a sense, but people are all different and how you're wired to bring value to the marketplace isn't just who you are right now, but it's who you develop yourself into. And that's the idea is that this guy spent 15 years doing it. He just didn't like wake up one morning and suddenly is going to become a billionaire. Okay, there was so much that went into that, his development of his passion and skills, his strengths, okay, and his drive to go out there and create an organization, create community, and hire people. And there was so much effort behind that to provide value in the marketplace. And that's where I would say, yeah, there's this use of equality where the rich have all of this and you don't, and you're entitled to that. They shouldn't have that. You should have that. And again, this goes to politicians you know people playing god and coming to this you know that they're not fallible and they're going to come to figure out the best way to distribute all the different resources and it's such a toxic thing where you rob humanity in a sense and that kind of goes on right now because it is occurring money is taken from people involuntarily and distributed to different programs which i've said before it's In a sense, it looks so inhumane. Well, why wouldn't we give them food stamps or why wouldn't we provide housing for them? And I agree that there's certain circumstances, but at the same time, people are wired to figure life out. They're not wired to have things done for them where they just sit in their house and do nothing. And again, there's exceptions for this. I'm totally gonna get reamed. I can totally see the the response like this. (laughs) But I look at, you know, the best thing that's happened for me is being on the brink of poverty, being on the brink of bankruptcy, being on the brink of like, not being able to feed my family. If everything was taking care of it for me, I would never have learned anywhere near the lessons that I've learned. But this is where we all have to, you know, in a sense, as far as capitalism, understanding how powerful it is. We all have to understand that we're all fallible. We all have to understand that there's no such thing as perfect in this life. It just doesn't exist. And it's never going to exist in government. It's never going to exist with pure capitalism. But at the same time, what is the most humane thing to do? What is the fairest? And I would say the fairest, is to protect people from their natural rights, right? Life, liberty, and property. But then at that same time, the problems are not on the shoulders of government to figure out. Problems in the purest sense when it comes to capitalism are for individuals to operate in a system where their mind works, where they can come up with ideas. And there's friction in that process. At the same time, look at what we have seen in humanity over the last like 50 years, even the last 10 years right, and how much that's improved our lives. And it all originated from an idea in a person's head, and them acting on that idea. So there are these, you know, I would say, principles of capitalism wired into our society. But at the same time, you know, there's a definitely a, a big force against it, which is trying to rob some of those liberties. That was kind of how I, I looked at some of the things that you that you said, I'll let you, you know, have some of the final comments and words and then talk about some of the more inspirational things that have helped you understand this perspective that you have and we both share.
1: Well, it's funny. I just saw an article this past week where it was like Fidel Castro's grandson's Instagram oh, feed yeah. I saw was like leaked, thing. you I saw know, and he's like on yachts and hanging out with babes and he's living like the lifestyle. And... Right. <laughs> and what has been generally true is that in societies where these more collectivist, socialist hype economic policies have taken root. There's almost always, I don't want to say always, some I haven't studied all of the history. There's almost always a class of people who sit on top of that system and still and live exactly like the people that were being demonized in order to get that system put together. And so I think we've got a lot of examples we can look around at in the world right now with what's going on in Venezuela you know again cuba whatever we've got the ability to see how what's happening other places and i just hope that we can see and look at the lessons of other countries and other times and use that to discern where we should go as a society and at the same time what it also reminds me of is brings us full circle back to the film i made nullification really when we start getting into these issues Nullification was very much about this idea of federalism and how the more personal the problems we have as a society are, the more local the governance and the more localized the policies are that we should wrestle through those problems instead of looking to establish one-size-fits-all legislation and policies to go over 330 million people in one country. And In that whole process, as more and more power has been sucked up to Washington, D.C., we've lost a lot of community and humanity in our own cities and neighborhoods and towns. The front porch communities of old don't exist much anymore. We don't know our neighbors. And I think this is all related to the idea of how we are designed to be our brother's keeper which is for us to take care of one another, to look after one another from a voluntary sense, not only through capitalism. And again, I think capitalism is the way, but there is something in us that we are wired to care for those in our tribe. And so I just see a lot of what's gone on as a result of like a breakdown in that. I see the tribalism, that's happening on the national political level, the ugly politics, all of that. Like all of that comes back to remind me that ultimately we are responsible for our own humanity and we're responsible for the way in which we carry ourselves and demonstrate the moral code that we would like to see demonstrated by others. I mean, it's the most fundamental idea. I'm on the board of an organization called the Libertarian Christian Institute. We have a podcast as well. We've had a hundred episodes or we're celebrating our hundredth episode today, actually. Awesome. Congrats, I'll, man. I'll, yeah, thank you. And part of what's driven us as an organization and me to be a part of it is because we want to talk about the ideas of capitalism from a very moral, Jesus-centered perspective. And so when I think about what's influenced me, I am very influenced by the Bible in the treatment of money. And in the treatment of capitalism, and the word doesn't appear, but a lot of principles of capitalism, I think, are very evident. If you have Larry Reed on, he's got a lot he could say about that. The book that Fee puts out, Was Jesus a Socialist, I think is what it's called, I think is a great little book to read on this idea. And then for me, I think the other things that have really, really impacted me is talking with other entrepreneurs. As I've become an entrepreneur, as I've seen what that takes, and and I'm a believer that not everybody is designed to be an entrepreneur. Like, I think there's plenty of people who, you know, we're all wired different, like you said. But what I've started to see is I've talked to more and more entrepreneurs, learned more and more about who's out in the world creating businesses right now. I echo your sentiment that there's never been more opportunity. And I also believe that the more entrepreneurs you talk to, the more you can really see them as true heroes because entrepreneurs are creating value. They're creating jobs, the new ideas that as a society and as a world, we are solving all of the problems together for one another. And so that's what's inspiring me recently is to really spend time Looking at, reading about, talking to other entrepreneurs and people who are capitalists out in the world to see what they're up to and the
0: problems that they're solving in society. Well, one of the things that you just said that resonated is it's echoed from the theory of moral sentiments, that original work by Adam Smith, where it's, yeah. you know, people are driven. It's like this innate thing that we have to take care of one another. However, doing it involuntarily being forced to take care of somebody else you don't have that same drive and it goes to christianity i mean what are the two greatest commandments right and it, those commandments of loving it's loving others like but also loving others as we love ourselves so it incorporates the idea of you know understanding ourselves and our role in society and in humanity but capitalism is not this like high level thing that, that it's associated with a society or a country it's very individual. And I think if you understand those principles are number one, it could give you a different perspective on what you do on a day-to-day basis, understand your relationship with yourself, but also understand your relationship with others and how others help you, but how you could potentially help others. And then I would say from a a group side of things or or a bigger picture, understanding these principles, right. And then aligning yourself with other individuals understand these principles Really does help our community and our society adhere to them on a higher level, more so than there exists today. Because today, you know, I would say that people are not reading, they're not thinking, they're not having conversation around these type of macro topics, right? It's around very superficial things. And I think that, you know, allows the creeping in of the ideas of being forced to be moral, that people, you know, the Robin Hood mentality, you rob from the haves to give to the have-nots because they don't have and we should take care of them. So anyway, we won't go down, down that rabbit trail, obviously, tonight. But Jace, I'll give you the final word before we leave off, before we end the podcast It went way over our time a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> You'll probably need to fit another break in there somewhere. Uh, know, but yeah. yeah, so, you know, I think... Patrick, I'm going to take an opportunity to kind of plug you a little bit. Like one thing that is just needs to be true is people need to take responsibility for their own financial autonomy and people need to surround themselves by other people that can help them to become more autonomous, more in control of their own financial future destiny And access to the capital that they need to be able to fulfill on whatever the dream or the idea or the mission is that they've got out there. And so, there's at the heart of all of what we're talking about is I would see it as very immoral for me to ever throw up an obstacle in the way of somebody else trying to fulfill on what they believe their mission and purpose and calling is in this world. And it turns out that often that has to do with the work that we do in the world, because again, we're wired for service. And so the work that you're doing in the prosperity economics movement, the work that you're doing through Paradigm Life, I see that as something that really empowers and grants people the tools, not only the tools of knowledge, but real financial tools to be able to achieve those things and to Become an entrepreneur, to become a steward of the resources they have, so that whether it is to give, to solve the world's problems through entrepreneurship, or whatever it is, that they can be the captain of their own destiny. So, anyway, that's all I got to say, man. I really enjoy the time we can speak together and wish you the best.
0: Well, there's my commercial. Thank you. I'll throw it, <laughs> I'll throw it right back on you, you know, because we've known each other for several years now, right? And you have some incredible creative talents. And you've been able to own it, right? I think you were doing a little freelance stuff here and there when we first met, and worked, but mostly working for others. But you've taken the entrepreneurial calling that you, I think has, has been inside you for a while, probably for a long time, and owned it and took some risks and went out there. And you've been incredibly successful. So I'll plug you. If anyone wants uh, some video or marketing work done, Jason's your man. That's right.
1: JasonRank.com.
0: <laughs> yeah, so we'll post, we'll post a lot of, you know all that all your contact information at JasonRink.com, your social media where you're very active, so people can follow you. But Jason, you're the man. Thanks a ton for being on and having this cool conversation with me. Thanks, man. All right, everyone, that's it for today. Make sure you stick with us to next week. We have some more scintillating information and conversation about capitalism. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Standard podcast. Be sure to visit the show's official website, thewealthstandard.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Guest opinions are their own. If you require specific investing, financial, legal, tax, or any other specialized advice, please consult an appropriate professional. We welcome and appreciate reviews of the show head on over to iTunes or Stitcher to leave your review. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to get access to every new episode and exclusive interviews this season. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.